Welcome to This Week, Next Week from Group M. I'm Brian Weezer. I'm Kate Scott Dawkins. And thanks for joining us as always. Well, you know, this was quite a week. Um, obviously, the probably biggest story, um, although U.S.-centric, we acknowledge, uh, was the Supreme Court uh, news around Roe v. Wade, and uh, it's likely uh, overturning. You know, it, we'll, we'll talk about this uh a bit uh, later in the show with our uh, special guest um, talking about a range of issues um, around the media industry primarily, uh, but we have uh, Claire Atkinson from uh, from Insider um, uh, to talk with us. Uh, but you know, maybe the the thing that stood out from a business perspective uh, around the world at a global level this week was what we might call analyst panic. Yep. Uh, Kate, what did you see? Yeah, I mean, certainly um, the direction the Fed is taking, um, you know, it's amazing. People kind of hang on every word that uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says in terms of trying to figure out the direction of travel. Um, so I think that's influencing a lot of the the conversation this week. Yeah, and it truly is global. Um, I, I spent a little bit of time watching um, some uh, Indian television, in fact, uh, on, on the interwebs, uh, because uh, our very own Kate Scott Dawkins is uh, going to be appearing on a, a CBC India program. Uh, and, um, you know, it was really interesting that, that night that, you know, what, that, what uh, the U.S. Fed, what the RBI is doing, you know, obviously in every country around the world, um, you know, central banks have to make a, um, a choice about what they're doing. Um, and you see a lot of significant moves in currencies, which, you know, really potentially start to distort some of the sizes of different markets from our vantage point, too. But um, but I think this has also played into uh, some of the themes around uh, the advertising industry and, you know, starting with what we saw with uh, with Netflix, which isn't really about the advertising thing, more about the sub thing and numbers from Facebook that disappointed and uh relative to well i guess actually they they exceeded expectations relative to the fall <laughs> what the expectations were in february but still um the, the narrative around deceleration or decline is common and, and you know kate are you a hockey fan at all i'm not are we talking field hockey or ice hockey ice hockey the only correct hockey <laughs> is, I, see, I, I married a south african so you know there it's field hockey uh, warm okay climate. well this isn't Neither. You know, I follow neither. I guess that would have right. a much shorter answer. I don't either, but it's not sports ball, right? Hockey is its own thing. And uh, and so as someone who grew up in Canada, uh, necessarily, you have to like hockey. I think it's a law. Okay, so I'm reminded of uh, hockey. And when I think about what's going on in the advertising industry, and I'm reminded of the Edmonton Oilers, uh, you know, in the late 80s, they were a dominant hockey team. They had the best players on earth. Wayne Gretzky was the best hockey player ever uh, by many standards. Some would disagree. And he left to go to Los Angeles, right? The Los Angeles Kings, famously. And what happened the next year? They, lo they lost Gretzky, but they still have Marc Messier and a ton of other amazing players. And they still won the Stanley Cup. And what I'm thinking is, Advertising in 2022 is a lot like the Edmonton Oilers under Mark Messier. Still really strong and really powerful. Maybe not okay. what it was under Gretzky, which was last year. What do you okay. think of that metaphor? Uh, well, as a, a non-hockey person, uh, it's all right. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe there's I mean, a baseball equivalent. 
Probably, probably. So what we're saying is that, you know, 2021, especially against fairly low, you know, comparables in, in 2020 and the kind of downturn we saw there, 2021 was huge, right? I mean, we've seen uh, some of the biggest, especially digital ad sellers growing 40% or more in some markets. Um, and, you know, we've now heard from companies like Amazon and Facebook, especially that you know, the e-commerce kind of boom from the last couple of years is, is slowing down. Um, and that's definitely going to lead to softer advertising growth numbers for this year. To be clear, again, not decline for the most part, but certainly not uh, at the same level as what we saw last year. For the most part. Now, here's the thing that actually I've been able to calculate this past week because there's so much in the way of earnings news from e-commerce based companies beyond Amazon, but now including the likes of Shopify and Etsy and many, many others. And actually, if we look at the companies that have reported, we actually can see a median decline in e-commerce spending. So GMV on my estimates, maybe negative two, some low single digit decline, but that's off of e-commerce having grown in 2020 by about 40%, and, and then e-commerce growing another 20% in 2021, and we are seeing decline against very difficult comparables. So a thing that I'm piecing together is that when we go back to what Facebook said, they said e-commerce was actually their biggest category of advertising. They said it led the decline or deceleration. I've argued, we've argued, that the impact from what Apple is doing is actually pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. It's a few percentage points of impact. My suspicion is that the weakness in e-commerce right now on a relative year-over-year -year basis is probably driving more of the deceleration that we're seeing at Facebook than anything else, which also means if e-commerce related advertising is declining, all other advertising is actually growing pretty well, which is why you saw better results from Google and you're seeing pretty good overall results. You're seeing double digit growth overall in the first quarter probably. Yeah, I mean, we've talked before. Another uh, e-commerce um, company reporting was Wish, and we actually have their like Q122 sales and advertising or sales and marketing numbers. Um, it's down to less than one tenth. I mean, it was 45 million in uh, the first quarter of this year. It was 470 million in the first quarter of last year. This is also really underappreciated. So. I keep mentioning Wish as an example of, of something, a key trend in global advertising that too few people are aware of, the role of Chinese manufacturers advertising in countries outside of China, right? Wish is sort of the best example of this. It was a pure play company dedicated to this. And the near collapse of the company is remarkable, not least because according to some press reports, they were possibly Facebook's biggest single advertiser in 2020, like a billion and a half dollars of advertising spending down to trending towards tens millions? Yep. Yeah. Now they did say they'll come back later in the year, they're doing a rebrand, they're recasting themselves and, and all that. And, and we're not repining on Wish's business and its long-term prospects, but but it's a, a great example of a business that, it, it, you know, between the what's happening in China right now and the consequences of all the lockdowns in Shanghai, uh, paired with e-commerce having difficult comparables. I mean, that's kind of, the problem in a nutshell, if there should be anywhere to panic, it's there, right? Yeah, I mean, do you have fewer packages showing up on your doorstep uh, over the last couple of months as we, I mean, some places are returning to normal, some places are seeing more COVID cases. I know we certainly are here, but um, we're just 
sort of <laughs> riding the wave of e-commerce based on where everything's locked down or not, I guess. Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I got to say, I did get into certain habits. You know, last week I realized I needed a new comb, a comb, right? I don't have that much hair, but I needed a comb. And uh, for $3 on Amazon, I found a one, you know, it was a quick search. And it's like, sure, I'll order it. And the next day, my $3 comb arrived. What are the economics of that? Not not very good, right? I'm I'm happy to get it. What are the carbon costs of that? <laughs> oh, I know, I know. I did feel bad about that after the fact. But anyways, so what else have you been looking at this uh, with the news of the past week? Yeah, um, like you mentioned, a lot of earnings, more uh, app-based businesses that we like to track. I mean, I think we've seen, um, we've talked a little bit about the e-commerce related ones, um, the travel uh, businesses are hugely increasing their sales and marketing budgets this quarter as things, again, I think people return somewhat to travel. Not sure the longevity of that, um, given these, again, recent COVID waves. But, um, you know, we're seeing folks like uh, booking a billion and a half uh, in the quarter um, and Expedia as well, uh, you know, similar at 1.3 billion in the quarter of sales and marketing expense. It's not exactly advertising expense because we don't usually get that until the the 10Ks, um, but it gives you a direction of travel and, and that direction is up. Well, and that's kind of a big point. I think people are missing back to why maybe the panic is overdone. Like there's a downturn on one part, but an upturn on another. And inflation, much as we might dislike it, again, I think is elevating a lot of this because consumers are demonstrating willingness to buy stuff because they're sitting on cash. Yeah, or to... I, I, push more again into services and experiences rather than goods potentially. Fair enough, fair <laughs> but enough. services still need to be advertised. <laughs> so um, among the services to be advertised that I think are um, increasingly important, regardless of what happened to Netflix, is uh, streaming services. And, and you know, we did see, um, you know, Paramount reported uh, their results uh, this past week and, you know, continued uh, traction for Paramount Plus. And, um, but I think that uh, the, the, you know, Disney Plus is still, uh, we'll talk about that coming up um, with the results next week. Um, and whatever HBO Max is uh, doing is also seeing growth. We wanted to talk about those two businesses in particular with one particular expert, Claire Atkinson. Yep, let's have a listen. Joining us now someone I've known for a very long time, and hopefully many of you listeners will have read for a very long time, Claire Atkinson from Insider. Claire, okay. how are you? I'm well. How are you doing? I'm good. And for those of you who are listeners who are unfamiliar, uh, who are you? I am chief media correspondent at Insider. I work for the business vertical. And we write about everything from changes in TV news, streaming news, Hollywood, Netflix, advertising, creator economy, which I feel like we really kind of cornered the market on that story. We have a huge team. The stories do extremely well. Um, everybody wants to know, how do I make money being an influencer? So it's a very uh, popular set of stories that we publish quite frequently so yeah great and people can also find you on uh, cnn sometimes too yes once in a while cnn uh reliable sources has me on air to talk about sometimes cnn's own issues um and 
I think I was on recently talking about Elon Musk and Twitter and the impact of his bid on the company. We, we haven't talked about that at all on this podcast, have we, Brian? No. <laughs> it's Ooh, always good a- to have a topic to talk about, isn't it? When somebody <laughs> does something unexpected and they're a big, uh, you know, figure out there in the tech world, it's good to kind of chew down what the implications of billionaires owning the communications platforms are. Well, this will be an evergreen topic, I suspect, for a little while, because who knows when, what's going to happen. Maybe we'll come back to Elon in a moment. But, uh, you know, I know I'm, I'm particularly interested in your perspective on a couple of companies where I know you've done some really deep reporting, uh, probably more than almost anyone else. But uh, Warner in particular, Warner Discovery, as it's called. Now, I, I'm genuinely curious, how do you interpret how that company is going to act and evolve um are they going to keep the you know the jason kyler playbook i thought putting jb in the that slot of the hbo max slot was notable on the other hand david zaslav seems to be a bit more shall we say short-term oriented uh maybe not as long-term um future value oriented as kyler was what's your take i i would say the opposite of that is true i feel like David Zaslav on the last call he did with Wall Street emphasized that they're a fully diversified company. And what he meant by that was, we're not just about winning the streaming war and spending billions on content. We're more fiscally um, conservative in that we have this pay TV business that still throws off tons of money. We have a theatrical business that we need to get back on board with. Um, and that in some ways it's a little bit of a traditional back to basics because at the end of the day, um, Wall Street wants to see where the money's coming from. Um, And David's story for Wall Street is, you know, streaming, we're going to try and grow it as much as we can. But at the end of the day, his quote was, we don't want to win the spending war. Um, And I think that's wise in many ways because, Adding subscribers is one thing, but what happens when you hit the wall? We've seen Wall Street go cold on Netflix because they had their first downturn in a very long time. That's led to questions now about whether all these streamers and big media companies should continue to be throwing all this money at the wall. Um, Just back to WB Discovery for a second. Um, It was managed by AT&T for two, three, four years. They were in some ways stymied by the fact that they couldn't manage it because the merger was in um, in front of the DOJ under the Trump administration. And that made it very difficult for them to kind of fast forward a lot of the plans. That slowdown, I think, um, led to them having to do other things to kind of show Wall Street they were on top of it. Um, they brought in Jason. That was a, a big surprise to everybody. Um, here was the you know the former Hulu CEO who was kind of a boy genius, great at running streaming, but perhaps unproven in being a CEO of a 30, 40,000 uh, employees around the world. And at a time of crisis for a lot of companies, COVID led this um, led companies to have to pivot fast on what they, these businesses were. People were not going to theme parks anymore. They were not going into movie theaters and having to really kind of lead in a crisis and and Jason did some things that I think were short term like let's put the theatrical movies on 
HBO Max for free and get subscribers. And that was, you know, he, in his mind, that's a, consu a very consumer friendly move. Maybe not such of a Wall Street friendly move. This is an interesting interpretation. I hadn't. Um, well, I guess it's, it's contrary to what I think. And I think this is Kate. You'll have to be the tiebreaker here. But um, <laughs> but but I interpreted Kyler's choices as betting on what needed to be true for call it 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Disney. Similarly, if you go back to when they announced Disney Plus and everything that they did, I viewed those actions and a lot of the actions that Kyler took as essentially burning the boats and basically saying there is no going back we're going to blow up the existing structure we're going to burn bridges with historical relationships historical conventions and we're just going to keep moving forward and and, and my interpretation on this was that att had no idea what kyler was doing and that he was just moving forward based on what he thought was right for a 50-year vision if you will and the idea of focusing on short-term profitability is i that is a very short-term oriented strategy but i guess you're suggesting that the tactics that kyler chose were actually more short-term oriented and that yeah, that's a better position for the long run i think you can grow your subscriptions business but i don't think you have to destroy the, the entire rest of the business plan and i think when you look at 2019 and you see the billion dollar movie franchises that disney had and the huge warner movies back then and you simply wipe that from the, uh, you know, the P&L essentially because you want to grow streaming. And obviously we're talking about a weird period in, of time where nobody was going to theaters and it was in some ways a necessary move. Um, I would argue, you know, Disney had the right idea. They decided they would offer movies for pay-per-view. Like why not still bring in revenue uh, off the back of those hugely expensive movies that cost hundred, hundreds of millions to produce, find a way to, to in some way um, get more money from the consumer. Um, I, I think that when you move a movie to a streamer, in some ways, you know, the talent gets cut out of the, uh, the payment system. They get mad at you. Jason had to pay $200 million to kind of make everybody whole because of that move. And so, you know, I think that... Um, you, you don't destroy your existing businesses in order to just only focus on one. I think you have to focus on all of them and hope that they can all work in tandem and that you can like slice the pie and monetize that content in every potential venue that you can. And now we're seeing theaters coming back and people going back to the Batman and, and are looking forward to the summer releases again. And the, you know, the, the theater owners are out there saying, yeah, we're looking forward to this return with we're feeling good about the disney slate this year and the hope is that those big billion dollar franchises return and make these big media company balance sheets look a bit healthier does that hope a bit of willful optimism as we like to say on this year like can it ever go back or or is this idea of keeping such diversified businesses now that consumer habits and business models have changed um, you know, studios were kind of over the barrel with movie theaters in terms of windows for a long time, and they now have sort of newfound leverage to say, we don't have to do it your way anymore, and we we could have people pay for these. Um, I think maintaining multiple diversified lines of business can be complex. I mean, it's interesting. You noted in one of your articles whether WBD would 
create a position somewhat similar to um, Kareem Daniel at Disney, who sits at the top and says, you know, as a content manager, does does this piece of IP go to streaming or cable or you know theatrical, whatever it is? Um, you're you're going to need something like that if you have these sort of competing business lines potentially. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think the good thing for consumers that came out of COVID is that we can now watch some really amazing theatrical movies on streaming and we don't have to wait too long. Um, the argument that the media companies always had were, were we're spending all, all this money on marketing dollars only to have you know that movie come out, be a hit for three weeks, disappear nine months down the line, then we have to spend it all over again to remind people buy the DVD or see it on pay TV. And so, you know, they wanted to collapse this window so that they could make the most of those marketing dollars in and around the same time. And that's kind of what how we're going to move forward now. There's going to be like a 30 day to 45 day window. Um, Discovery is, I believe, maintaining whatever deal Jason did with the theatrical owners into 2022. What happens beyond that will be a question. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think people will go back to cinemas. Will they go back in the same numbers they were? Maybe not. Um, but I do think that when you have a theatrical opening of a movie, it, it adds value to the piece of IP and it makes it feel more special when you finally sit down and watch it in streaming. Um, I watched Dune on streaming and I thought it was terrible and I shut it off after 15 minutes. I suspect if I had paid my 15 bucks to watch it in the movie theater and there were no, there wasn't any laundry or text messaging that I could be doing at the same time, I think that I probably would have appreciated the cinematic beauty of it as well as whatever the narrative was. But I think that when you watch something in streaming that the narrative and the story has to work so much harder and it's not simply about a visual, beautiful experience. And so I don't think the two things translate. And I think that David's philosophy is let's get back to eventizing the movies. If we've spent all this money producing something very expensive with big talent, then having a red carpet and a, a cinema premiere makes it feel like you're watching something special when it comes to streaming. Now, I covered the actual, the, I covered the music business when I was at the New York Post. And I think there's some really interesting parallels here in that when Spotify was offering a all you can eat menu of music, it never felt like Taylor Swift's newest album was special. It was just some other element in a sea of content. And I think that it's wise for folks to go back to this idea of open it first in the theaters, if it's you know big and beautiful and expensive, and then maintain that chain where you know streaming is the next window. And you know, I, I think another fascinating topic is will Netflix start opening its movies in the theaters? And that's something that the theaters would like Amazon and Netflix to start doing, which I think is a fascinating turnaround because these two big big tech streamers have been working to you know, almost subvert the theatrical experience and now maybe they'll be part of it. Well, I guess that's a fair point that uh, if, if if you could argue that every individual studio, if they made actions independently based on what was best for the individual business, they might make choices like that. But my view is that people make bad choices sometimes because it's better than the alternative, which is worse. 
And in a world where Apple's not going that direction, mostly Amazon's not going that direction, mostly Netflix won't go that direction, competitive thrust will just prevent it. But but I, I want to pivot a bit to Disney. And then, and again, because they're, I guess, also going down this path that I, I feel the industry will go, which is, and as you, you characterized it correctly or well, the, the idea that, that it's probably a better balance of the making sure that they are making theatrical available and uh, streaming, at least if you're not a Pixar film. Um, great stuff, but poorly promoted as a result, right? Um, what are you, what are your thoughts about what's going on there with uh, what about Bob? I mean, you That's know, a big question. <laughs> yeah. How what's your take on his antennae? Shall we say? Um, so all leaders are very different and have different styles. And I think that Bob Iger and Bob Chapek, who ultimately Bob Iger decided should be his successor, were a kind of a yin and a yang. So you had the very uh, innovative charismatic leader in Bob Iger versus the conservative in some ways um, leader who from what I hear doesn't need or take a lot of counsel from a lot of people he's more I've got my team and my team are mostly folks that I work with in the theatrical business and they're the folks who I'm going to rely on and you know, one of the most controversial things he did was, as you said, to appoint as as a content czar in Kareem. And what that essentially did was have one person in charge of much of the PL at the companies. And that ended up neutering and taking away power from a lot of satellite bosses and put a lot of noses out of joint, not just inside Disney, but in the, you know, the wider uh, agent community because now you have to, it's really Kareem has a lot of power. Um, what you see Bob doing right now is um, getting big in the metaverse. That seems to be a bit of a bet of his that he's going to hire a team and they're going to do things that relate to the theme park experience in the metaverse. There's a guy called Mike White who's running that operation. That all sounds interesting. I don't know where the revenue will come from, but I guess that emerges eventually. Um, but you know, the, the big elephant in the room is what happens with this situation with Florida that was essentially kind of bust out because of uh, you know the don't say gay legislation, and that is a big problem. Yeah, and that's kind of where it's going. Also, with the the, the antennae issue. I mean, I guess we can make a, an argument one way or another about centralizing the commercial side of the business and there's pros and cons and you can argue good antennae versus bad antennae would give you confidence around those choices but but then you have this situation where they appoint someone as a head of corporate affairs and he would have individually appointed that person to replace a team that was already in place and uh and Clearly, they were making a choice to say better to say nothing, but keep the funding going to politicians. And that didn't strike me as well attuned. Correct. Uh, I, I think that um, they played a bad hand. I think they know they did. And they ended up alienating everybody. Um, I think that one of their problems, in fact, was the fact that their former CEO tweeted uh, Joe Biden in saying, you know, I, I agree with Joe, this is terrible, and uh, this is not good for the LGBTQ community. And 
that led everybody else to say, well, what does Bob Chapek think of this? Um, and, you know, at that time, they had decided they were going to kind of review everything they were doing, all political funding, all the kind of like, what should we speak out on and not? And, you know, without needing to rehash what happened, they ended up playing into Ron DeSantis's hands, and he is using this as a way to, um, you know, potentially run for president. This is an issue that a lot of right-wing voters uh, feel strongly about. It, it is, you know, Hollywood and California and the content elites kind of running the country. And um, Disney's kind of like fallen into that hole every day. There's a the headline in the Orlando Sentinel about the situation and how Juan DeSantis has decided he's going to take away the special privileges that Disney has in the theme parks in Orlando. And, you know, that that's a big concern for Disney. How that plays out with Disney's board right now, I think, is a really big question. Like, what are they thinking about how this gets resolved? Um, I don't know how it does. The, as you mentioned, the corporate communications executive uh, quit or left or was fired, who knows, uh, after three months on the job. And they just hired somebody who is a former spokesperson for Michelle Obama. She worked for Joe Biden. Um, she's clearly more attuned to the progressives um, who work at Disney and the wider LGBTQ community who visit the parks. Um, and so, you know, it almost Disney's relationship with that community is, is a story in and of itself. And what, you know, what happens uh, to those execs who uh, Disney is moving a big portion of its staff from California to Florida. And so these are folks who are concerned about how their kids are going to be treated in schools. And, you know, it's it's they would characterize it as a human rights issue that Disney should have out of the gate known they should have st stood up for um, or stood against the don't say gay bill. And now it's passed. And you know, who knows what happens next? I mean, I guess the big questions are, are there more heads to roll? I mean, it, it feels like it was made so much worse given these tensions that were already boiling. You know, you, you mentioned the sort of other studio heads and, and network heads who had been, um, to you know, the content czar was above their heads. And so those were the stories that also came out or the perspectives of Bob Chapek that came out once all the Florida news sort of sort of started surfacing. Um, but interesting in that it was, it, it sounded from the outside, like a lot of the employee pushback um, was, you know, quick to push change or, or action. Um, so it's, it's an interesting, I guess, um, changing tied around the power that employees have at these big businesses um, versus things getting done through donations or lobbying at a more corporate level or even amongst the department heads. It was sort of the employees on the ground pushing that. Absolutely. And, you know, this is the big sort of change we're seeing all over corporate America that, that Gen Z and younger folks, um, they don't just sit there and say, OK, I, I need to keep my job. Therefore, I better not speak out. They are speaking out in on everything that affects them, everything they think is wrong, they put their hand up and say, there's an injustice here and I don't like it and we need to change it. Um, you know, and I think you're right. You hit the nail on the head, Kate, in that that did affect change at, at um, Disney. And they had literally just put out their corporate 
um, ESG statement about everything they stood for and how they cared about their employees and wanted to look after them and wanted to look after the wider world. And then this just exploded um, right as the, the annual shareholders meeting happened and Chapek had to stand up and later apologize for everything that had happened. And, you know, what, one of the fascinating things is from a, a business journalism perspective is that Disney's chairman of the board is a gay lady and Susan Arnold, who is out and, and public about it. And, you know, the board was involved in the board, the CEO and the corporate communications executives were all on the same page about how they were going to approach it. And so you kind of wonder, um, you know, how that happened, how nobody could have seen or foreseen like that there would be pushback here. Um, but, you know, you know, I to be fair to Disney, there's a lot of corporations operating in Florida who said nothing about this. Um, it, Disney um, fell into the hole in some ways because they're a huge employer there because of this shift of employees to Orlando and because of Bob Iger throwing a spotlight on it. Um, you know, you might ask, what about all the, the cruise lines that operate out of Florida? What do they think about it? What are the... Um, what does Comcast think about it? What does Six Flags or SeaWorld and, you know, all these other entities that um, I believe they've all signed a letter about their opposition to it, but nobody kind of like stood up individually and said something. And, and Disney was the only company that was called out about it. Well, it harkens back though to, we had, I mean, this is getting quite US centric now, but there were uh, calls for, and I, you know, in Georgia as well, um, I think it was like Coke and, and, um, one of the airlines eventually came out um, around some political uh, issues there as well and, and spoke out. Um, but I think, again, after pressure, really. Yeah, I think, you know, companies try and move as a pack and nobody really wants to lead on these things. But um, more and more, we're seeing them pressed into taking an issue on political matters as they are described as, you know, the human rights issues and not politics. Do you think that politics and human rights issues become more prevalent for uh, companies in the industry as this year progresses? Yeah, I mean, you could see this week with Roe versus Wade how um, this is a, a huge topic for, I think it should be a huge topic for both men and women. And, you know, I'm sure companies are figuring out what to say, if anything, whether they should say something or not. And, um, you know, it's a couple of, Companies have already said that they would pay for transportation for women who want to seek abortions outside of their own home state. And, uh, you know, beyond that, it'll be interesting to see who, if the law is, if the Supreme Court decides on that change, what will happen after that? I mean, this gives them a bit of preparation time to kind of really consider what's next. Um, and, you know, curiously, that's that topic is kind of overshadowing all of the news. Uh, and we see it, you know, when we look at traffic numbers to particular stories when something big like this breaks it puts a shadow on everything else we're doing because people just want to read about that one topic i'll put well claire thank you so much for joining us on this week next week um we'll look forward to reading more of you an insider and seeing you more on cnn great thanks guys thanks for having me on appreciate it well always great to uh Hear Claire's perspective is, you know, certainly always a must read whenever she's, uh, you know, breaking news on any of the companies that uh, that she follows. Um, 
You know, on on the topic of of uh, Roe versus Wade and and you know the abortion issue, um, you know, obviously it's something we're we're going to be studying and thinking a lot about over, um, you know, weeks, months, years ahead. Um, certainly, I don't know. I mean, when we 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 try to focus on this this program about the the business and marketing uh, consequences of of the world and how it's evolving beyond the human issues, which are obviously far more important here, but. You know, one top of mind issue is, uh, you know, clearly this is going to galvanize a lot of um, action, probably on, on those who are for, those who are against it in the United States. The, the spending on political advertising and associations that, with this will probably be massive. Yeah, I, mean, I think we've talked before, we were already seeing um, like upward trends, I believe, in political advertising, you know, over the last um, few years or, or editions of this year, next year. Um, and yeah, I certainly foresee that being um, a big uptick this year, which may, you know, in the in the version where we include political advertising um, may help buoy some slower growth in other sectors for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then I guess some of the other knock-on effects, um, uh, you know, does this impact the composition of Congress uh, in the United States in the midterms? And then does that then have effects on things like, um, you know, antitrust uh, policies or um, trying to break up the large, you know, digital giants of the world that does have yeah. global ramifications? Yeah, that feels like the only thing Congress can agree on at the moment is uh, data <laughs> privacy. Maybe not exactly how we get there, but um, you know, we saw the, the introduction of um, a possible bill uh, which would limit the ability of companies with more than I think 20 billion in, in revenue to uh, in if they have 20 billion in advertising revenue it would limit their ability to own basically the exchanges and the um, the selling platforms as well. Um, sure. So we're keeping an eye on that too. And there's bipartisan support for it. So it may be fair that regardless of what the composition of Congress is like, that that continues to move forward. Um, so what are you looking towards uh, for the week ahead? Uh, we're still waiting for I mean, a few companies to report. Um, so we'll be keeping an eye on those. Um, and also uh, doing think more looking into the, the economics and the English central bank was sort of warning against the possibility of stagflation. And so um, we'll be having a further look at whether uh, interest rates and, you know, recession fears play into how companies are, are planning for the year ahead and, and for their advertising budgets as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll hear from ITV uh, when they report um, results in the, uh, I guess, middle of next week and then Disney as well. And so they'll certainly touch on these uh, concerns, I'm sure, um, as they're seeing them. And then uh, we'll be able to pine on our interpretation of what they say they're seeing. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to hear uh, if and how much they touch on some of the um, issues we were speaking about with Claire in terms of the Florida bill and losing special status in, in Florida for their um land there and their development there um we'll see if that features in their earnings call at all well you, you and actually we'll be getting into some we could get into some fun inside baseball on that in terms of how the uh, you know the the earnings calls play out and how analysts may choose to stay away from that um you know or not um it'd be interesting if, if the company wanted to be bold uh and probably address issues they they will say something the analysts won't ask the question so it's up to the company to say something and and that's maybe a bigger trend around all of these social issues. You know, we're in a world now where 
uh, a company who does not say what they're for will be perceived to be against it and and vice versa and uh you know disney will have an interesting chance on its uh, earnings call because the analysts will not ask uh for a whole bunch of reasons primarily because they don't want to get disinvited <laughs> to the next call or they don't want to risk it or or whatever sensitivities that they often have and um and so you know it'll be interesting this is disney still has a chance to you know dig itself out of the the hole it finds itself in um on a number of issues here so we'll see what happens all right well until then thanks for listening to this week next week thanks again this week next week is hosted by me kate scott dawkins and brian weiser our producer is jared bayman our showrunner is sam weston the views and opinions expressed here are our own and are not intended to represent those of Group M or its clients. If you have questions, comments, or requests for future segments, let us know at business.intelligence at groupm.com. Mm-hmm.